Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Our guest today is Dr. Michael West, MD-PhD, FCCM. Dr. West is currently the uh, Chief of Surgery at San Francisco General Hospital in San Francisco, California, where he is also a Professor of Surgery at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. Uh, He is currently regarding his SCCM issues on the, he is co-chair of the Congress Program Planning Committee for this year's scientific congress and we have him here today as someone who from my perspective has had a fascinating career path and i wanted to share that with the members of sccm his focus is trauma and critical care in addition he has basic science responsibilities significant administrative responsibilities and heavily involved at the national level with sccm and other societies and i thought i would let him talk about some of those issues here with us today on the podcast thank you michael for being with us today it's, it's very nice to be here. I thought I'd let you begin by talking about um, your background a little bit and perhaps your how you ended up in the path that you were in terms of becoming a trauma critical care surgeon. And uh, the part that you spoke with me about before that I found particularly fascinating uh, is a little bit of the history of, of sort of getting into critical care before it had formalized itself as a fellowship. Well, I, I did my residency training in the beginning in 1980, and I uh, trained at the University of Minnesota, uh, which was a unique program in a number of ways. Uh, getting back to your your earlier point, the uh, the University of Minnesota had had a very uh, strong legacy of innovation in surgery and had an emphasis on on research, and that's part of how I got into the. Uh, the research area, and perhaps we can talk a little bit more about that uh, later. I I was very fortunate that early in my training in Minnesota, one of the pioneers of uh, critical care medicine, Dr. Frank Serra, who I I think is a past president of the uh, society, was recruited to Minnesota, and he ended up establishing a, a formal ICU and, in fact, an ICU service. And uh, nowadays, we take all of these kinds of things for granted as, as to what constitutes an intensive care unit and the, the whole concept of having residents and fellows and uh, nurses and pharmacists training in an ICU environment. But, but that was actually a, a new and innovative uh, system and concept back in the early 80s. And I, I was fortunate to be the beneficiary uh, of seeing that kind of concept uh, brought to fruition uh, at the at the University of Minnesota when Dr. Sierra arrived, and there. you worked with him um, in what sounds sort of like a fellowship, but it was during your your residency in terms of, or was it r- right after residency? Well, there really weren't any fellowships, so there were very few fellowships. I think that uh, Dr. Dr. Sarah established a fellowship at the University of Minnesota in the about the mid uh, '80s. I think that our uh, our incoming 
uh, president in, a, in another year or so, Dr. Deutschman, was one of the very early uh, fellow, uh, fellows from Dr. Sarah's program there at the University of, of Minnesota. Uh, my, my initial exposure to, to the critical care ended up occurring just as a resident. And in fact, an interesting uh, aspect of the way the critical care was delivered when I first started there and to look at the, the changes that have occurred is that, that ironically, there was a specific effort to have the sickest patients outside of the intensive care unit. So often those sickest patients ended up being patients with uh, septic problems, pressure dependent, uh, ventilator dependent, et cetera, et cetera. And because of concerns, uh, perhaps well-founded or perhaps not, uh, uh, about uh, transmission from patient to patient uh, of in nosocomial infections. Those patients were then moved out of the ICU, had a special care nurse and a ventilator in one of the, the general rooms. So the, the intensive care unit, the actual facility that we had in the old hospital, uh, ended up having four bed uh, critical care wards, and so there really, I think it was a prudent thing to do because there really would be uh, quite a significant possibility of transmission from from patient to patient. So early... So it's fascinating and prescient about some of these issues of, of isolation. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so we were, we were managing those patients out on the floor. Even the, the ICU service did not manage them. I, as an intern or a junior resident on the surgical service, was managing you know, the sickest uh, patients, ventilator-dependent, out on the, on the floor with, a, uh, with excellent nursing care and, and other uh, uh, support modalities. So the other part that's, that's fascinating was that you, you obtained a PhD as, as part of your residency, and, and I would imagine that that is one of the things that helped you get involved with both, oh, basic science research long term, and I was wondering if you could talk about that uh, for a little bit in terms of your experience with it and how uh, that helped you choose an area of long-term basic science commitment. Well, that, that certainly was instrumental in, in uh, the exposure and developing some of the, the tools and the skills to be able to, to, uh, to perform basic science research and to be able to compete for, for funding. So as I, as I mentioned, the University of Minnesota had a, a strong emphasis on, on research, and all of the residents were encouraged to uh, select a laboratory uh, and, and spend a minimum of, of two years uh, in the research laboratory. Uh, my research uh, mentor was Richard Simmons, who uh, was a, a transplant surgeon, had, a, uh, had written a textbook at that time on surgical infectious disease, which was my primary uh, interest in terms of, of research. And Dr. Uh, Simmons and Dr. Sarah had their laboratories and offices co-located. So I ended up being the beneficiary when I went into the laboratory of uh, not only having Dr. Simmons as my mentor, but de facto having Dr. Sarah uh, as a mentor as, as well. And, and then in terms of that, uh, that research, we were uh, trying to, to develop an in vitro model for liver dysfunction in sepsis, uh, really in multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. And uh, we ended up developing a co-culture model of hepatocytes and Kupfer cells. And that work was all done in conjunction with uh, Dr. Sarah and Dr. Simmons. And it really was because what we saw in the uh, critical care unit was that the patients who did the worst with organ dysfunction 
function, uh, multiple organ failure syndrome is what we called it at that time, uh, were the patients when they began to have uh, liver, liver dysfunction. So we wanted to understand that. We had support modalities for uh, respiratory failure and for renal failure, but we really did not have any kind of a support modality for uh, liver dysfunction. And at the point that the patient's bilirubin began to rise and they had nutritional problems, et cetera, that's when they, the survival often went down. So we wanted to understand and, that. Um, but with Dr. Simmons as one of your mentors, were you at some point considering going into becoming a transplant surgeon? That must have come up at least, right? Well, it did come up, and as a matter of fact, I at one point was was uh, slotted to to do that fellowship. I, I mean, it was a it was a fascinating uh, environment, and uh, perhaps not so uh, uncommonly from a lot of people. As I went from rotation to, to rotation within that environment, I became enamored with cardiac surgery and then with uh, transplant surgery. Uh, the particular interest for transplant surgery was that because I had an interest in uh, infectious disease and, in fact, did a, a fellowship in surgical infectious disease with Dr. Simmons during, during that, uh, 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 my research time, uh, when I had the, the break from the, uh, the clinical medicine, it looked like transplant at that time was the place to be to, to have the most exotic uh, infections because the patients were so immunosuppressed back in the, uh, the mid-'80s that they had all kinds of terrible uh, uh, nosocomial infections, fungal infections, and the like. Uh, however, when I, when I finished my, my residency and I was going to have to wait a year to do the transplant fellowship, I had a number of, of very uh, good job offers at, uh, at very prestigious institutions. And I kind of did some soul searching and said, is, am I really going to need to do transplant to be happy? It, it looked like I can do my research, I can uh, do the, uh, the general surgery, do some uh, trauma surgery, do critical care. In fact, that's what the job offers uh, were, to be involved with uh, uh, intensive care units at those respective institutions. And so I decided to forego the transplant uh, fellowship, and the position that I ended up accepting was uh, at uh, Barnes Hospital in Washington University right out of residency training. And then uh, you said you were at Barnes Jewish for a while, then went back to Minnesota and eventually at Chicago. And uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about that for, for a little bit in terms of at most of those places, at, at, at all of them you were functioning uh, as, a, as, a, as a general trauma critical care surgeon and doing research at the time. Is that correct or...? That that is correct. Uh, you know the the effort, which I don't know, uh, really ends up actually being being achieved to be some sort of renaissance renaissance uh, man in terms of doing all of those things, or the the traditional kind of academic triple threat that you're going to be you're going to be teaching and you're doing some administration and you're doing research and you're doing clinical. Uh, I guess that's the quadruple threat. Uh, uh, clinical medicine as well. And, you know, um, I ended up training in the uh, environment well before the 80-hour work week. So, so as a surgical resident, we were used to working 100 and 120 hours a week. And so when we downshifted to, to uh, 65 or 80 hours a week, it seemed like uh, we were on a perpetual vacation. So One of the hard things for people who are trying to get into research, and, and uh, you know, even if like I've remained academically active, but getting grants can often be a whole separate area. That was something that, as part of your PhD, allowed you to become familiar with the techniques of, of doing that? 
Well, I, I became familiarized with it really through uh, my association with Dr. Simmons and Dr. Sarah. D- Dr. Simmons is has just an unbelievable uh, record of academic productivity. I think that he has uh, more than 1,300 uh, publications. He is a superb uh, editor and and is is really a, a brilliant investigator. And and I, I was very fortunate to be associated with him and be able to have his insights and and kind of. Uh, spring off of his success with writing grants and and I think that there's no there was no better way no better exposure for me uh, to have possibly had in terms of uh, of doing that so I came out you still have to have a good idea but in terms of the the nuts and bolts of writing abstracts and papers and uh, research grants that I think that I I was extraordinarily well trained in in that. One of the things I was going to ask you, just to taking you up to the present days, is how do how do you, in terms of time management and staying committed to all of these areas? I, I know other colleagues will say, okay, you know, I, I've done that for a certain number of years, and I want to stay focused on 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 my on my clinical, or I'm just going to be administrative, or actually, I really prefer just being in the lab, and I'm going to go back to that. Um, and those are all fine, uh, but do you say like uh, you know they hear um, the success of of like um, Bill Gates as he takes his three weeks off and he goes and that's when he catches up on all his reading or something like that? What what do you do? Do you take one day a week and say I am only in a lab and don't bother me with any of my clinical? Or do you compartmentalize? I, I hope that's an interesting sort of point. Well, it it may or may not be an interesting point. I, I'm not uh, I have not been anywhere near as successful as as Bill Gates in terms of of any of those things, and I can't imagine how uh, how somebody like him can can manage all of the things that that he's got. Uh, I, I struggle to to manage the responsibilities that I have, and it remains to be seen, I guess, to be honest, whether all of those things uh, can continue to uh, to go on. In in my most recent move to uh, uh, to UCSF and San Francisco General, I do have a considerably more administrative responsibilities than I've had in the past. And at some point, something does does have to give. Uh, I'm I'm hopeful that because of the really extraordinary research environment that there is at at UCSF, that some of the other infrastructure things and collaborative opportunities uh, will be such at my stage of of doing research that uh, that the research can continue to be successful and that I can be recruiting postdocs and residents to work in the laboratory and that I could serve in the same sort of mentoring capacity that some of uh, my mentors had served in, in in the past. And that would be extraordinarily uh, rewarding for me at, at this time. Uh, luckily, I'm not really having to, to struggle uh, at this stage in my career with doing the, the basic you know, bench research of adding reagents and and purifying cells and some of the kinds of things that I had done uh, in the past. But that past exposure, I think, is is critical to being able to to monitor and manage uh, other people because it, it, the the thing I think really about the. Uh, uh, in-depth research is that you've got to understand enough about the the methodology uh, and where there may be potential problems or where there may be potential artifacts to be able to to sort through those things. So you kind of can't you can't do it kind of completely in a correspondence course kind of way. But at the point that you do have some of those insights and understand enough about it, uh, then I think that you can uh, hopefully effectively manage uh, other people and oversee it and and have this. Uh, 
this higher level thing in terms of trying to direct the the research or or uh, hopefully uh, be able to inspire some of the other people who are actually doing all of that uh, that research. So so at the same time that that being in a leadership uh, position ends up imposing other. Uh, time constraints, it also op offers up the opportunity that there are other people uh, who I now have access to who can be doing some of that that research and, and uh, that I can be influential or helpful to them in terms of making their research uh, uh, productive. So uh, I'm old enough that my own research maybe doesn't matter so much at this point. No, and, and I misspoke. It, it is extremely important, and I did really want to ask you this, is that even in my, at my own stage, keeping all these things, the projects I'm working on straight and keeping them organized and devoting the proper time is extremely challenging, and, and that when you're in the clinical, you're 100% wrapped up in that, and yet making sure that you're hitting the proper other targets if you're trying to do all of those things and keeping them straight can, can often be very intimidating, so I, I really did want to know. I will say, in perhaps a little more direct uh, uh, answer to your question, that oftentimes the, the clinical rotations that, that we have, it ends up being assigned a week at a time uh, in the ICU or a week to be covering the trauma and uh, acute care surgery service. So those weeks, it's, it's very unlikely that there's going to be a lot of other uh, academic productivity. But then, and, and then again, just to, to sort of conclude it, as you've pointed out, the idea at your stage is you get the lab going, that it becomes uh, somewhat uh, self-sufficient, that it can go for a week or two without you needing to be there minute to minute, obviously, right? No, that's absolutely correct. Um, there were a couple other interesting points um, that I wanted to get about. You mentioned here some of your, um, you're involved in some clinical trials, and you mentioned the GLUE grant, and I, th I thought if you could talk about that for a few minutes, I wanted to talk to you about some of the issues that I've been seeing recently as I've been involved in my uh, post-fellowship life for about a decade now and seeing the problems that critical care has been having with randomized trials. So maybe if I'd, I'd, I'd let you talk about that for a few minutes. Well, well, the GLUE grant is a, uh, a really interesting uh, research project. It's a, a multi-institutional, uh, multidisciplinary, really, research uh, project that's funded by the uh, National Institutes of Health and the Institutes of General Medical uh, Sciences. There were several GLUE grants, but, the, but what we affectionately call the GLUE grant, and which, in fact, has that uh, web address, is uh, the only clinical uh, study that was funded by the NIH, and the the basic uh, the, the basic project is to have a complete as complete a, as possible genomic, uh, uh, proteomic, and physiologic characterization of what happens to acutely injured uh, trauma patients and acute burn patients. So with some of the, the new technologies, the DNA microarrays, and, and we've partnered with uh, the Pacific Northwest National Laboratories to be doing uh, our proteomic studies, we had uh, for this study uh, identified a bunch of uh, several major trauma centers, so we've got that clinical expertise and the uh, and a very complete database, and then having um, computational people and data management people and statisticians that are all in this this big project. And the the uh, the name Glue Grant 
was intended to emphasize the fact that it was providing uh, infrastructure and funding to glue all of these people together uh, to be able to try to tackle a, a bigger problem than any of the other prior uh, NIH funding mechanisms might be able to do. Uh, the, the Glue Grant is now in its uh, ninth uh, year, ninth or tenth year of funding. I think we just entered the, um, we're coming up on the end of the, um, the funding period and are, are looking at mechanisms to try to hold this consortium uh, together because I think we really are, are making some, some uh, important contributions. So um, just for the listeners, so this is, I know there's a national trauma database, but this is looking at trauma patients and trying to characterize them more at the molecular level. Is that the big picture? It's very, it's very d distinctly different from the, the National Trauma Database. The National Trauma Database is a, uh, uh, a database from the American College of Surgeons that has a very limited uh, data set in terms of the, the fields that are entered. And, but the, the real benefit of the National Trauma uh, Database, data bank, is that it is attempting to get a snapshot of what's going on in terms of clinical trauma care, the demographics, and some of those kinds of things for trauma across the country. Uh, the Glue Grant is, is very different in, in that it is trying to select the, the sickest patients the sickest trauma patients who go on to develop organ failure and trying to see whether we can find uh, gen uh, genomic, uh, the, the proteomic physiologic predictors to identify the patients who have various trajectories uh, after their acute uh, traumatic uh, injury in terms of what their outcomes are going to be. But it is a national, it's a national uh, entity, right? Or no? No, no, it's not. It's it's not really a national entity. There are. Um, oh, well, it's multi-center, but it, it's it's multi-center. There are, there are. Uh, I, I can't. I, yeah, I let can't me remember. let me pause. So, in an analogous fashion to the ArdsNet, uh, my understanding in speaking with you before is that you are on the steering committee of the Glue Grant, and this sounded particularly fascinating. So, where the ArdsNet is trying to use the power of a NIH funded multi-center area of improving outcomes with patients with ARDS. This is focused in primarily on patients who are the severely ill burn patients or the severely ill trauma patients. And the idea is not just to collect data, but to actually collect samples and try and characterize at the molecular level, um, as you were pointing out to me, the genomic, proteomic, and transcriptional level why these patients may uh, go on to develop organ failure or perhaps not, and eventually to prevent potentially the organ failure in these high-risk patients, many of whom, as, as you pointed out to me, who are hurt rather than sick, and therefore we should be able to prevent them in theory from, from going on to developing devastating multi-organ dysfunction. And you were saying you're on the steering committee of that. Did, did I get any of that right? Yeah, I think you. I think you got all of that right. That, that uh, is, the that by identifying the 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 sickest patients and trying to have a, as uniform a, a population as possible, so that we don't have so much noise when we're studying this at the very very granular level that that you described. The hope is that we'll be able to identify some of the the factors 
that distinguish who goes on to develop uh, organ failure or have problems from someone who has a relatively uneventful recovery, the, the, similar to the kind of thing that we as intensive care practitioners see all the time. Two people who come into the ICU with seemingly an identical uh, kind of insult or initial problem, and they can have very, very divergent uh, kinds of uh, clinical outcomes and, and pathways. And we all struggle to understand that. In this case, this, this group is trying to use that trauma paradigm and that as the initial uh, insult to try to distinguish who's getting better, who's, who's not, and to characterize uh, their response to injury. I'd like to conclude, if I could, by letting us have a conversation about an area that has sort of become more and more important in my life, and um, to have a conversation with somebody like you who is now working back at where I trained as a fellow in terms of staffing patterns in, in specifically surgical ICUs. So I rotated as a fellow in the unit that you now are in charge of, uh, or the department that you're now in charge of. And so since I finished fellowship, I'm, my boards are primarily in internal medicine, but I have been working in surgical ICUs since I finished. And it is sort of with great passion that I work in not a trauma unit, but I've been working in surgical ICUs where the surgeons will be operating. And if I'm doing my job well and they under know that I have spoken to them extensively about what happened to the patient, that if they're not called, they can do their job in the OR and sort of that is why I get up every day. And you and I were having discussion that in your experience, seeing that if you've, what is it, if you've seen one ICU, you've seen one ICU in terms of how different ICUs are staffed. And my opinion, my question to you is, you know, talking a little bit about what you've seen, what you think works better, what you think doesn't, and would you be happy to have somebody like me in your ICU kind of thing who, who isn't a surgeon? Well, I'd be delighted to have you working in, in RICU, but I, how can I say something uh, different? <laughs> top, of that, top of that, you you trained in RICU, so so uh, you have all of our biases. You know, you're probably right about if you've seen one ICU, you've seen one ICU, and one of the things that that everybody has learned from the uh, attempt to, to implement some of the bundles and things like that is that there is no one-size-fits-all, and, and so I don't know that that we can necessarily say that there is some ideal staffing model. I've seen different staffing models, and I've had experience with a number of different ways of organizing an, an ICU, but it has to work in the culture and the environment uh, that that everybody finds themselves in. Um, now, just one, one other point that I think is particularly important for uh, surgical ICUs, because there is a lot of talk, there's talk from the LeapFrog Initiative and some of those kinds of things about moving toward closed uh, ICUs. And I think that you and I had talked uh, offline before about the fact that in, in, the, in surgical units and in terms of dealing with surgeons, that it is really sort of an antithetical concept to surgeons to be relinquishing the care of their patients and not participating in any way. But my experience has been similar to yours, that having said that, if you have if you have a knowledgeable person and who is communicating well with the surgeons, that the surgeons are very busy and have other things to do and are delighted to have somebody else uh, kind of being their eyes and ears and doing the uh, implementing the plan that had been agreed upon. So I, I don't I think that that surgeons often will not uh, micromanage in, in those kinds of units if it's well organized and if there is good communication and I think that really is is the key. But, but you've seen it both work I, and not. I mean you were you were discussing me before you've seen um, or 
you've seen one's work better than others, and and I was wondering if you might share what what are some of the key features of units that you like that work well. Well, I, I think that one of the the key future features, as I say, is is really just the the communication. And one way that I can see to kind of ensure that communication is that that there would be some sort of mechanism, and depending on how your order entry system is, again, this would have to be, uh, would be individualized for a unit, but that orders and care changes would not get implemented by one team without the other team knowing about it. And so I think it's important to have at, at a systemic level uh, systems in place to prevent that from happening and, and really forcing the people, if there, if there is any disagreement about the care, to talk to one another and work it out. Because my experience has been that we always can end up uh, working it out. Reasonable people can end up uh, agreeing on a care plan. And what we don't want to do is have, uh, you know, sort of analogous to uh, the temperature control in the car or something. That one person's turning it up, the other person's turning it down. But uh, my, we, my experience with that, just because this is my entire life, is that, you know, you hear talks at the meeting about uh, general units versus closed, uh, I'm sorry, large units that have multi-specialty versus specialty units. And my experience is that in these large academic centers where you develop surgeons that develop significant focused areas of expertise, even as trauma surgeons, and that if you have a small cadre of surgeons and a small cadre of intensivists, that can become a very fluid process where both become very familiar with how they want their care plans to go in general. Is that your experience as well? No, that, that, that has been my experience. And, and, and that multidisciplinary thing and bringing other medical specialties, and we're talking more on the physician side here, uh, in is, is almost always beneficial that, that uh, the other specialties, anesthesiologists, have been the most uh, frequent ones that I've been encounter encountering uh, bring a different perspective, and that perspective is healthy. I learn th things from my anesthesia uh, uh, partners, and I and I hope that they learn things from from me and and the neurologists and and things like that. So I think that is is something that you want to uh, try to leverage in terms of raising the overall level of care uh, in the unit. And, and I don't think that, that the, the discussion uh, about kind of closed units, open units, is, is necessarily helpful in that regard. Yeah, I agree 100%. It, it, uh, there are other experts who concur with you that those kinds of conversations often tend to lead to more friction than to positive outcomes in the ICU and rather keeping it focused on the care and keeping it focused on how can we develop a system that we all agree will allow us to move forward on the same page. I mean, that's when I'm on rounds, I'm always talking about consensus and I'm talking about coordination and communication. And if, 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 my surgeons are pleased with how we're going, and I'm always saying on the sun rounds, there's almost always three or four right ways that we could go at this point. But what I care about is that my surgeons know what I'm working on and that we're all heading in the same direction because the thing that you, that, that as an intensivist who is as passionate as my surgeons is exactly what you said, turning the dial up and then turning it down, turning it up, because then we're not heading in any particular direction, and I don't think that helps the patient. But one of the other things that I think right? we all, I mean, no, no, you, I, I agree. One of the other things we always have an opportunity to do in, in the critical care unit, and it seems to me that this is one of the key things that we do, is that if there is a disagreement about, about something, that whichever direction we're going, and, uh, and if I have 
an attending surgeon, even as another surgeon who's saying, I, I think this is the way to go, say, well, we're going to try this for a while. And, and then we're monitoring the patient. We're looking at what the response is. If we see that we're going in the right direction, then I stand corrected, and uh, we can continue down that path. Uh, and if not, we have the opportunity to, to say, okay, we, we did that, we tried that, we're seeing that it's not working and the patient's not getting better or they're getting worse or whatever. And now everyone, I think, can agree to do that. So, so this idea that, that we sometimes can mistakenly have about, you know, we have to do it kind of my way right now usually is not necessary. We, we just need to be continuing to monitor the patient and see what their response is because uh, then, then it becomes self-evident what the right way to go is. Well, Dr. West, I thought this would be a good interview, and it was. I'm very grateful for an opportunity to speak with Dr. Michael A. West, MD, PhD, FCCM. He is currently the Director of Surgery, uh, Chief of Surgery at San Francisco General Hospital, and he is a Professor of Surgery at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, and we have been talking about what it is to be involved clinically, having basic research responsibilities and significant administrative responsibilities as well. Thank you so much, Dr. West, for joining us today. Thank you. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information, as well as access to over four years of archived podcasts. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD of CCM. Dr. Savell is the medical co-director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City, practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org. Dot org.